These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. There once was a man who had a job to play music. He did this on the radio. Some people paid him under the table to play their music. It was something that had been going on for years and everybody in the business knew about it. And there were no laws against it. But the music the man played wasn't understood by everyone. The man called it rock and roll, but others called it the devil's music. Some people would use any means to get kids not to hear this music, so they made a huge deal about the money he was receiving. Before this, he was a king, and after he was bankrupt and unemployed. Today I have the story of the man named Alan Freed, better known to the world as Mr. Rock and Roll, on the 198th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Good Sunday morning, my name is Jeff, and for the next half an hour or so, I'll be your storyteller. For those new to Coffee with Jeff, my name is Jeff, and I spent about two weeks researching a subject that I would like to know more about. Then I write it in a story that I hope you find entertaining. Well, we had a beautiful Saturday in Chicago. The weather was perfect. I was outside in shorts, I did some yard work, had a beer, took the dog for a long walk. It was nice. And it's going to be nice today, but Monday, it's supposed to get crappy again. Well, at least we had a nice weekend, am I right? (laughs) And still, the self-isolation continues. So this week, we have the story of Alan Freed. You know, I don't know what to think of him. I read the book, The Big Beat, Alan Freed in the Early Days of Rock and Roll by John A. Jackson. A book, by the way, I used a lot for the writing of the show. And after reading that book, I still don't know what to make of him. I guess I like the man, um, even though he did some questionable things in his career. Many refer to him as a flawed individual, but I think sometimes that term, flawed, is just an excuse for ignoring the bad things people have done. But then again, aren't we all flawed individuals? Anyway, I'm going to get right to it because it's sort of a longish story. Here we go with the story of the man they called Mr. Rock and Roll. From New York City, the home of rock and roll, we welcome you to the big beat in popular music in America. And here's the king of rock and roll himself, Alan Freed. Hello, everybody. How are you all? This is yours truly, Alan Freed. Get your dancing shoes on and welcome to the rock and roll dance party. Let's say you're a singer who just recorded your first rock and roll record. You know it's a great tune, yet for some reason it doesn't sell. You think to yourself, if only the kids could just hear it, it would be a hit. One day a disc jockey tells you that if you give him a couple dollars, he'll play your record on the radio. You pay him, he plays your record, and now you've got a hit. The idea of paying a disc jockey under the table so he'll play your record is a form of bribery that we call payola. And you know, it wasn't even illegal until 1960. The idea of payola goes back to at least the 1880s. The term itself was coined in 1916 by Variety magazine. Payola was highly used in vaudeville in the 20s and in the big band era of the 1930s and 40s. 
Most of the music industry knew of its existence, yet not much was done about it. It's just the way things were done. That all changed with a new form of music in the 1950s called rock and roll. When it was originally called rhythm and blues, mostly listened to by the African-American community, no one really cared. When it began to be called rock and roll and white teenagers began buying the records, it was suddenly scary, responsible for turning kids into jubilant delinquents, or so many thought. To many, the way to stop this menace was to take down its champion, and his name was Alan Freed. Albert James Freed was born on December 15, 1921. With his parents and two brothers, he lived in a home in Salem, Ohio. The Freed household was one where music was always important. They had a Sunday evening song fest in which all five gathered around the piano. David, Ellen's older brother, said, There was never a time we didn't have a piano and that we didn't sing. Nicknamed A.J. by his domineering mother, he had the idea of being a symphony trombonist after he received a battered instrument on his seventh birthday. But around the time he was 12, that idea changed when swing music took over America. Alan got the dancing bug. Every day on the radio, the family would listen to Lucky Stripe's 10 Top Tunes, which featured the day's most popular swing music. A.J. was a trombonist in the Quaker Marching Band, and then started his own band called the Sultans of Swing, where he played at high school dances. In high school, he was remembered as everything from a good guy, a loner, a go-getter, and a shrewd operator. One of his high school friends later said that he was an opportunist who thought the world owed him a living. He was always trying to make a quick buck, even lying to do so. Another friend said, Al was so devious in high school that Lyons and I used to call him Legal Al because he could dream up more ways of getting money out of his so-called friends than anyone I'd ever seen. After high school, he went to Ohio State University. It was at college that he began to get an interest in radio, and that continued when he served in the U.S. Army during World War II as a DJ on Armed Forces Radio. He only served a short time in the Army before he was given a medical discharge. At the time of his discharge, the only thing he wanted was to be a radio newscaster. Soon after taking classes at a broadcasting school, he landed a job at WKST in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Also at the time, he met Betty Lou Bean, and the two were married. At WKST, Allen did everything, from sweeping up the floor to announcing the local classical music program. He was paid $17 a week. From there, he moved to WKBN in Youngstown, Ohio, and then to WAKR in Ankrin. He was determined to make his way to the top. At WAKR, he was paid the huge amount of $62.50 a week. He did the nightly sports wrap-up and the 11 p.m. news. Soon, however, he became a full-fledged disc jockey, hosting a late-night show called Request Review. He played the top recordings of the day by people like Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, and Woody Herman. Often late at night, he would upset the station by playing unapproved music, tunes they thought were too wild for airplay. By 1947, Request Review was the most popular show in Ankrin. And while he became a local celebrity who was recognized everywhere he went, he was still just a big fish in a small pond. And his success had a huge effect on his home life. 
he began working 12 to 14 hours a day and had little time for his wife and infant daughter. He said, At the time, my career had to come first, even before my family. We tried to make a go of it because of the children, but we became complete strangers. He began seeing an attractive blonde dancing instructor named Marjorie J. Hess, who everybody called Jackie. Betty was pregnant with her second child when she discovered the affair. She wanted a divorce, but Alan refused. It was only after she threatened to make his affair public that he agreed. WAKR was making a lot of money off Request Review, and Alan decided he wanted a piece of that pie, so he asked for more money. The station refused, so Alan decided not to renew his contract and take his talents to a rival station. The problem was he had signed a non-compete clause, which prevented him from taking work within a 75-mile radius of the station for one year should he leave. When he attempted to work at WADC, a short legal battle began. Freed lost the case and was ordered not to work in the area, and since he was not known outside Ankrin, his career was basically put on hold. After that, Alan and his brother attempted to open the Alan Freed School of Radio and Television, but that lasted only a few months. And after a failed attempt to move into the new growing medium of television, the down-and-out Alan Freed found himself drinking more and more. But it was that drinking that led to a new career. See, one night while out in a pub called Mullins, he met another heavy drinker named Leo Mintz. The two struck up a friendship as they were both into radio and music. Mintz was also the owner of a record store, one of Cleveland's largest. He was a longtime sponsor of WJW and used his influence to get Freed a job playing classical records late at night. But Leo Mintz had something else in mind. One day he invited Freed to his record shop and showed him his rhythm and blues records. The demand for these records were growing, but at the time were only played on small inner-city radio stations aimed at the African-American community. It was Mintz's idea to buy radio station time for Freed and have him play nothing but R&B records. Are you crazy, Freed replied. He didn't think there was a big audience for what he referred to as race records. Mintz began playing some of these tunes to Freed, and Freed admitted that their raw, exciting sound with its sexually suggestive lyrics might appeal to teenagers, maybe even white ones. Yet it took about a week of Mintz's pestering before Freed agreed. Freed worked for Mintz, and Mintz would tell him what records to play. Now, it's interesting that over the years, Freed's story of how it all began changed. It went from him saying that it was more Leo's idea than mine, to it was much his idea as mine, to his later years in which he took full credit for the idea, not even mentioning Mintz anymore. If it was one thing Alan Freed was good at, it was creating his own legend. He began on July 11, 1951, and it wasn't a hit initially, but it grew over the following months. And once white teenagers began to discover R&B music, Freed became one of the most popular disc jockeys in Cleveland. While most disc jockeys at the time attempted to be soft-spoken and cool, Freed acted crazy using the hippest lingo he could, sometimes talking during the records and banging a cowbell and telephone book to the beat of the song. One night, he played a song called Moondog Symphony by Lewis Thomas Hardin. He said, 
All right, Moondog, get in there, kid. Howl it out, buddy. And after that, he became known as Moondog, opening the show with, Hello, everybody. How are you tonight? This is Alan Freed, your old king of the Moondoggers. And it's time for some rhythm and blues records for all the gang in Moondog Kingdom. And he came up with a new phrase. He started calling it rock and roll. In March of 1952, Alan Freed, Leo Mintz, and Lou Plate decided to put on Moondog's Coronation Ball, a large five-act concert at the Cleveland Arena, which was an aging hockey arena, and it was billed as the most terrible ball of them all. That night, a large crowd of mostly African Americans showed up. The hall was quickly filled up, but outside, thousands more without tickets wanted to get in. As the gang inside drank and danced to the rhythm and blues, the many outside pushed against the doors, wanting to join the festivities. At around 9.30 p.m., the doors blew open and thousands began pouring in. The undermanned police force couldn't handle the craziness. Peter Hastings, who was there to photograph the dance, said, It was getting bigger all the time. I took the picture, and then we got out of there as fast as we could. It was frightening. The dance was called off, and it was only around 11.30 when police and fire department were able to restore order. The next day, people tried to blame Freed and his partners for overselling the concert and exposing the young audience to danger. This only added to Freed's legend and helped flame the fires of the evil of rock and roll. Freed was now on top of the Cleveland market, but in early 1953, it almost came to an end. On his way home from work at around 2 p.m., after spending a little time drinking at Mullins, he fell asleep at the wheel and went headfirst into a tree. Luckily, he was close to the police station. The police heard the crash. He was unconscious when they found him and had to be given a shot of adrenaline after his heart stopped. Doctors didn't expect him to live. He had a punctured lung and damage to his spleen and kidney. He spent months in the hospital, but eventually recovered. Doctors told him he could never have another drink for the rest of his life. After his recovery, his success continued, hosting dance parties and concerts. He formed Champagne Records and became a manager of the R&B band The Moonglows. It was at this time that the practice of taking songwriting credit on records began, whether he actually contributed anything to the music's creation or just insisted on taking credit for the lucrative publishing rights in exchange for airplay, no one really knows. Most assume he never wrote a thing. Alan Moondog Freed was so successful that, after about three years, he moved to the big city, New York. In July of 1954, he was hired by WINS, 1010 AM. Almost right away, he ran into some problems. Lewis Thomas Harding, who was a musician, composer, and poet, who wore a cloak and horned helmet, lived on the streets of New York. He was known as the Viking of 6th Avenue. He not only wrote the tune Moondog Symphony, but also referred to himself as Moondog. He took offense to Freed using the song and name. Taking Freed to court, he won a ruling by the New York State Supreme Court. Freed apologized and stopped using the name Moondog. Alan Freed's rock and roll party was on every evening from 6.30 to 11, Monday through Saturdays, and was a huge hit. In just a few months, it was number one in its time slot. He began hosting live events at Brooklyn's Paramount Theater. 
He also appeared in such films as Rock Around the Clock, Rock, 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 Mr. Rock and Roll, Don't Knock the Rock, and Go Johnny Go. And of course, he took songwriting credits on a number of hit records, such as Chuck Berry's Maybelline. Now, to Freed's credit, he began taking a stand when it came to white artists performing covers of songs by black singers. It was common for a popular R&B tune to be sanitized and sung by clean-cut white crooners. Freed angered the critics when he refused to play these covers, and instead insisted on playing the originals, which were often referred to as the devil's music. Success continued to grow when he was offered his own national TV show called Rock and Roll Party in 1957. This show, however, was dropped by ABC when an African-American singer, Frankie Lyman, was caught on camera dancing with a white girl. Apparently, the network's southern affiliates didn't appreciate that. In 1958, a riot broke out at one of his live shows. Freed was charged with incitement to riot and anarchy. When WINS failed to support him in his legal troubles, he decided to move on to WABC. And he was soon given a new TV show on WNEW. That was until the autumn of 1959. After the Charles Van Dorn Herbert Stemple quiz show scandal that brought down the network's game show fix, groups like the American Association of Composers, Authors, and Publishers known as the ASCAP, and other anti-rock-and-roll groups, thought they could use the same technique to bring down the evil rock-and-roll. They focused on payola, and just like in the quiz show scandal in which giving the answers to contestants before the show started wasn't illegal, there were no laws at the time for accepting money to play records. But there might be another financial reason the ASCAP was against rock-and-roll. See... They make money by protecting their members' musical copyrights by monitoring public performances of the music, whether via broadcasting or live performance, and the artists are compensated accordingly. But there was a new service called Broadcast Music Incorporated, or BMI. 74% of the top-selling songs were BMI property. Soon after the investigation of the quiz show scandal was over, the ASCAP complained about deceptive broadcasting practices. They alleged that there was a conspiracy of disc jockeys, broadcasters, and the MBI to suppress genuine talent and foster mediocre music upon the public. It was announced that the House Subcommittee on Legislative Oversight would next investigate the alleged commercial bribery in the promotion of music records and television commercials, as well as advertising plugs inserted by devious means into certain programs. Now, payola was one of those things that everybody in the music industry knew existed. Now, quickly, the radio station management wanted to distance themselves from the coming trouble. So they sent out a three-question affidavit regarding payola to all their disc jockeys. The questions asked if they ever accepted gratuities in connection with music promotion, and all disc jockeys were expected to answer no to each of the three questions. It was to be signed, notarized, and returned. When ABC sent this to Freed, Freed realized by answering these questions the way he was expected, he would perjure himself. So we refused to sign it. First he ignored it, then he argued against it, and then lawyers were brought in. And finally, Alan Freed was fired from both his radio show and his TV show. Freed said he refused on principle. 
I never take a dime to plug a record. I'd be a fool to do so. I'd be giving up control of my program, said Alan Freed. But the truth was the committee had a lot of evidence against Alan. Many other DJs did sign it to save their career. Freed's brother David said that he thought many of these lied under oath. Alan wasn't about to do that, he said. Alan was not going to sign the affidavit just so he could remain at WABC. Of course, the whole idea of the affidavit was to clear the management and to sacrifice the men at the bottom of the corporate ladder, the disc jockeys. Freed was the first to get fired, but many more followed. It ended the days where DJs could pick their own music to play. From then on, stations would tell them what vinyl to spin. In many ways, Freed made it worse on himself, because he wasn't about to go out quietly. He said things like, If I go down the drain, a lot of others will go down the drain with me. This, of course, just made matters worse, as he found himself being blackballed in the industry, unable to find work. He said, When the time comes, I'll clear my name, and I'll wind up on a white horse before this thing is over. Freed always believed that this whole thing would blow over in a matter of weeks, and that the scandal would make him a bigger person. He never thought for a minute that it would ruin his career. But the thing is, the investigation turned up a lot of evidence against Freed, and there was nothing he could do. And to make matters worse, the investigation not only showed he was involved in payola, but that the money wasn't reported as income. The Internal Revenue Service got involved. A trial began in December of 1962 and ended with Freed pleading guilty to two of seven counts of commercial bribery. He only received a $300 fine and a six-month suspended sentence. In January of 1963, he was arrested on a warrant charge that he hadn't paid the fine. For a time, he worked in Los Angeles at KDAY, but that didn't last long. During that time, he was forced to return to New York, and he and seven other radio figures were arrested and booked at a police station in Manhattan. They were charged with receiving a total of $116,850 in payola. While working at KDAY, he attempted to stay as energetic as ever, and he even signed an agreement to stay away from anything close to payola. Soon, however, he was fired from this job as well. On March 15, 1964, Freed was indicted by a federal grand jury for tax evasion. The IRS claimed that Freed owed $37,920 in tax on unreported income for the years of 1957 and 1959. Between his mounting legal bills, having a current wife, two ex-wives, and four children, he was bankrupt, despondent, and frequently drunk. Soon after the tax evasion charges, he entered a local hospital for gastrointestinal bleeding, resulting from cirrhosis of the liver. It seemed all those years of drinking heavy had finally caught up with him. Twenty days later, on January 10th, he was dead as a result of kidney failure. Alan Freed was only 43 years old. On January 23, 1986, Freed was inducted into the first class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and on January 10th, 1991, he received a star on the Walk of Fame in Hollywood. On February 26, 2002, 
Freed was honored at the Grammy Awards with a Trustee Award, which is presented to people who have made significant contributions to the field of recording. Get ready, New York. Here I come. Head back to the roots of rock and roll with the incredible true story of Alan Freed. I will be playing a new kind of music. He was the man who dared to spin the records that set the world on its ear. Kids love him. He is the hottest thing. (laughs) Alan Freed could really jumpstart things around here. We're going to teach this town to rock. Starring Paul Abdul and Judd Nelson as Alan Freed. You know the music. Now meet the man who brought it all to life. Mr. Rock and Roll. The Alan Freed Story. A little bit before I go, one aspect of the story that I originally wrote in and cut out due to time was Dick Clark. Clark was investigated just as much as Freed. The thing is, Clark was a shrewd businessman, but also had a clean-cut, squeaky-clean image, the total opposite of Freed. Now, Clark owned a lot of music-related businesses. In fact, in later years, he said that he never accepted any money to play music on American Bandstand, but his publishing and music companies were on the other side. They paid to get their records played. Anyway, Clark was given the option. He could either be a television personality or be in the music business. So he sold off all his interests in music and just focused on his TV work, and this seemed to satisfy everyone. So unlike Freed, Clark continued to be successful. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers entertainment podcast. Links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link on the Coffee with Jeff website. If you'd like to help with the costs of producing the show, you can do so by contributing to my Patreon page. Just go to CoffeeWithJeff.com for more information. You can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. I love getting emails. And you can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff. I also have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page you can join. Your story ideas are always welcome. I want to thank my wife of 35 years for being my wife of 35 years. David Metzger for providing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those who post this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting story. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.
Thank you. 